I'm Benjamin Perrin. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes of my new book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. You'll hear from people who are imprisoned, survivors of violent crime, whistleblowers, insiders, and investigators. You be the judge. Join us as we expose injustice, challenge the system, and explore a new transformative justice vision. I'm Benjamin Perrin, and this is Indictment. While researching my book, Indictment, I met many people that I'll never forget. One of them was Harold Johnson. Harold is a member of the Montreal Lake Cree Nation. A Harvard-trained Crown Prosecutor and criminal defense lawyer, he quit practicing law because of the harm he saw it causing Indigenous people. Instead, he devoted the rest of his life to advocating for Indigenous justice, developing and implementing initiatives to bring healing and restoration in Indigenous communities. He authored many books, including Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice in Canada, and Firewater, How Alcohol is Killing My People and Yours. This special episode was recorded on November 8th, 2021, at the UBC Law School to the entire first-year class. Harold passed away just three months later, on February 9th, 2022. This is his final public lecture. His last words, his closing argument, making the case for Indigenous justice. A content note, today's episode includes a discussion of trauma, intimate partner violence, suicide, death by impaired driving, substance use, colonial violence against Indigenous people, including residential schools and incarceration. There's also mention of sexual violence. So please, if you need support, check out the show notes for resources. I'm extremely honored to be here. Last time I was at this law school would be about 27 years ago. I came for an Indigenous Bar Association conference and I heard Michael Jackson speak there and was impressed. So it's good to be here and it feels like I'm being honored that I get to come back after that length of time and stand at this podium. Sometimes I sort of feel like I don't deserve to be here. I got some things to say. I practiced as a defense counsel first, and I told myself, I'm keeping Aboriginal people out of the justice system. And then I had this client hired me. He'd hit his wife. And I flew to his far north community, and he paid my fee and my airline ticket, my accommodations. I got rid of the charge for him. And he hit her again. And again he hired me. Again he paid my fees and accommodations and transportation. And again I got rid of the charge. Third time he hit her. And it felt like he thinks he can beat her up any time he wants and Harold Johnson's going to get him off. When I flew into his community this time, I took him out behind the community hall where we're holding court. And 
And I said, buddy, if you hit her again, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. Now you go in there and plead guilty and I'll keep your sorry ass out of jail. I don't know if he ever hit her again, but he never hired me again. I sort of felt like I was on the wrong side. I had many reasons for going over to prosecutions. The biggest one was 2008 and the economy collapsed, and I'm old enough to remember 1981. And that big recession, and how all the miners and loggers didn't have work. And I figured my little law practice wasn't going to survive, and took a job over with the Crown. When I was with the Crown, I told myself another story. Said you're defending the victims. 98% of the people in court in northern Saskatchewan were Aboriginal, and all of the victims were Aboriginal as well. And they were mostly women. And I was able to tell myself that story for a long time, that I'm defending the victims, until it became so abundantly clear that I was making things worse. I was making our communities worse. Sending people to jail, and we know this. We know we send someone to a provincial correctional center. They're going to come back, because they always come back. They're going to come back angry. And we send them to a federal institution, they're going to come back angry and mean. We're just bringing that anger and meanness back into the community. No matter how much I try to convince myself that I'm protecting the communities from their bad actions, that by sending them to jail, I'm giving the community a reprieve. Took a while, took a decade, till I saw what I was doing. If you're visibly Aboriginal, you're more likely to be stopped by the police. If you're stopped by the police, you're more likely to be arrested and charged. If you're charged, you're more likely to be denied bail. At this point, many Aboriginal people plead guilty just to get it over with. And yes, there are many people in prison today who are not guilty. They just know the system is so stacked against them, there's no sense fighting. When they do go to trial, they're more likely to be found guilty. And if they're found guilty, they're more likely to be sentenced to a period of incarceration. And if you're sentenced in Saskatchewan, your prison sentence will be twice as long as a non-Aboriginal person charged with the same offense. Once you're in jail, you will be assigned the highest security rating. You're more likely to serve your sentence in a maximum security institution. You're more likely to be denied bail or denied parole. 
and you're more likely to be found a dangerous offender. For every year of incarceration, you lose two years of life expectancy. In the 10 years as a prosecutor, I made recommendations for incarcerations many times, and I didn't add up all the years that I asked for. The life expectancy of an Aboriginal person in Northern Saskatchewan is 60 years. If I asked for 30 and the judge agreed with me, and he usually did, I took a life. I took an accumulated life, but it was still a life. We began locking up Aboriginal people in Saskatchewan, noted increase in about 1960. Ovid Mercury, Ovid Mercury told me he attended his first justice conference in 1970 on a boat on Lake Winnipeg called Indians and the Justice System. So by 1970, we knew something was wrong. By the 1990s, Canada recognized there was something wrong and the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people and started talking about it. In 1995, Canada changed the criminal code at its section 718.2e, telling judges to take into account the unique circumstances of Aboriginal people at sentencing and to use jail as a last resort. Nothing changed. Incarceration rates continued to climb. In 1999, the Supreme Court came down with a decision of R versus Gladue, and they said, hey, judges, pay attention. You have to abide by what the legislation says. You have to take into account the unique circumstances of Aboriginal people. And nothing changed. The incarceration rates continued to climb. I was defense counsel in LaRange, and I dared to make a Gladue argument in front of a judge. I hadn't heard it made in a provincial court in the North ever before. And I didn't know why. I made my arguments, and that judge got angry at me. Like, how fucking dare you tell me to be a racist and give this Indian a lesser sentence? And I know he gave my client a more severe sentence than he would have received if I had not made those arguments. In 2012, the Supreme Court came down with R versus Ipeely and very bluntly told judges, you damn well pay attention to what we said in Gladue. And nothing changed. The incarceration rates continue to climb. 
We can't tinker with the system. It requires fundamental change. Today we're locking up more women and children than at any time before. 95% of men and 97% of women incarcerated today were physically or sexually abused as children. That's what we're dealing with. We're still holding stupid justice conferences. I was invited. The last one I went to, I can't do that anymore. The last one I went to was in Winnipeg by invitation only. Oh, they had a good spread, man. It was hors d'oeuvres. Big goddamn shrimp. And your choice, red or white wine. And people gave speeches. And there were deputy ministers of justice from the provinces and the feds. And there were leading judges and there were professors there. And me. And man, they made some good speeches. People spoke because they wanted people to hear their voice. But they never said a damn thing. And I just wanted to go down to the street. Middle of winter. Get an Aboriginal woman. Bring her upstairs. Feed her some of that hot food that was at the back of the room. There was something hot to drink. Get her to tell these leading thinkers from across Canada what it feels like to be an Aboriginal woman on the streets of Winnipeg in the wintertime. You all heard about residential schools. Residential schools were designed to take our culture away. They did a good job of it. Problem is, they never gave us a replacement culture. It was assumed that we would assimilate into white culture. Only problem was we weren't welcome there. Started locking up Indians. Started giving them a new culture. Jailhouse culture. In jail, you learn that the institution's going to feed you, give you a bed and a roof, and learn to disrespect authority, and learn that violence solves problems, and learn the tough guy's the hero. You'll be exposed to different sexual experiences. And like I said, they always come back to the communities. They bring that jailhouse culture back. We've been doing it for decades. Generation after generation. And now we've got youth 
who believe that jailhouse culture is Aboriginal culture. We would not have a gang problem if we did not have jails. That's where gangs formed. That's where they began. That's where they grew. That's where they continue to grow. And that problem, too, comes back to the communities. Brings all of that other culture with them. I see this justice system locking up Aboriginal people, not just destroying those that they incarcerate, but damaging our communities. And I don't see a way out of it, a way to stop it, but it's destroying us. We become that cycle that just feeds the system. And nothing anybody has done or thought of in 50 years of conferences has made any damn difference. Supreme Court can't solve it. You guys have to. Trauma. 95% of men, 97% of women. That's where it is. We started to learn about trauma after the Vietnam War. First came across the phrase PTSD. There's a case study. Tom. Tom was in Vietnam. His platoon got ambushed in a rice paddy. His buddies were killed. Years later, when he's talking to a psychologist, that's not what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about what happened the next day when he went into a Vietnamese village and he murdered unarmed villagers, including children. And he raped a woman. The atrocity that Tom committed traumatized him more than the atrocity committed against him. As a prosecutor in northern Saskatchewan, I prosecuted 1,500 files a year. Let's say a thousand of those files documented a trauma. Well, multiple traumas. Not just the woman who got the shit kicked out of her, but the five children who watched, and also the man who did it. And you take my thousand files a year, and you multiply them by 11 prosecutors for Northern Saskatchewan, and you have 11,000 
files, each documenting multiple traumas. And there's only 38,000 people there. It doesn't take long until the entire population is traumatized multiple times. But it began a long time ago, this trauma thing. We like to think it began with residential schools. But it began before that. With the introduction of disease. We lost huge chunks of our populations. We lost leaders and thinkers and medicine people and our artists and our hunters and our warriors. And then we lost the buffalo. By the time we got the treaty, we were beaten, traumatized people. And then shortly after the treaty, we get an Indian Act and residential schools. And the trauma load just multiplies exponentially. And then people get out of those places and they come home and they bring it back. Then I got to deal with it. There's symptoms of trauma, anxiety, depression, overwhelming sense of sorrow, shame, grief. If you've got PTSD, you've got a trauma load that's seven, eight, nine, and it's there all the time. You go out for a drink. Friday night and it goes down to two or three and that feels really good that's what you think normal people feel like and you want to be there all the time alcohol alleviates all of the symptoms of PTSD only while you're intoxicated the biggest problem with it is in the side effects or after effects. You quickly develop a tolerance to it and you need more and more. And along with alcohol consumption, we get higher rates of violence in our community and continue to increase that trauma load on ourselves. I saw that 95% of the people in court were intoxicated by alcohol at the time they committed their offense. And I quickly realized we're not dealing with criminality. We're dealing with substance use disorders. And the law isn't prepared to deal with that. They don't want to talk about it. Most of my court points were in the far north, up close to the Northwest Territories border. And we'd fly into a community, hold court all day. And it was always alcohol. 
And we get back on the plane to fly back to Larange. And at the back of the plane, there's a cooler. And in that cooler, there's beer, bottles of wine, always a 12-year-old single malt scotch whiskey. And as the judge and the prosecutors and defense counsel and the clerks are getting back on the plane, they get themselves something to drink. And then when they get to Larange, they get in their vehicles and drive home. And if you're consuming, you can never see that there's anything wrong with that. Can't be anything wrong with it. I use it, right? Must be okay. It has to be the people who are fucking up. It's not the alcohol. It's the rationalization process. tell you a story about this trauma and alcohol and how it works together. Young man, and I know him really well. He lived across the lake from me. He's a good bushman. When he was young, he's in a relationship too young to be in a relationship. He didn't know how that worked. And him and his girlfriend walk out of the community late at night, and they've got a bottle. They walk down the highway, and they're standing on a bridge having a lover's quarrel. And she jumped in front of a semi to prove that she was serious. And he stayed with the body for three hours until the police and the ambulance arrived. And yeah, he's traumatized. He's having feelings. He's having thoughts he can't describe. He doesn't understand. He goes to somebody older, somebody wiser. He talks to his aunt tells her about these feelings and thoughts that he's having. Her advice, go and get drunk and forget about it. So he does. He gets drunk and he stays drunk. One beautiful July morning, he's sleeping in his car. Police are knocking on the window. Sometime during the night, he doesn't even remember. Driving around drunk, ran over his cousin, killed his cousin, found the cousin's DNA underneath his car. More trauma, more grief, more reason to drink. And we've got this wheel of trauma and grief and drinking and trauma and grief and drinking. And it's rolling over top of us. The only spoke in that wheel that I can imagine knocking out is that alcohol spoke.
Maybe if we do something there, we can slow this damn train down. Law can't fix it. Law talks about intention. If you're traumatized, the little reptilian part of your brain, the amygdala, and it makes decisions that don't go through the rational part of your brain, the frontal lobes. You don't think. You just act. And it's fight, flight, freeze. Another story. Young, another young couple in their 20s. They're having a few beer. They're not drunk. They've only had a couple. They're sharing a cigarette. And he reached over and took the cigarette out of her mouth when she wasn't ready. And something about his fingers touching her lips triggered her. And the next thing she remembers is giving the knife to her aunt. She'd stabbed him seven times. Didn't kill him. And all justice can do to deal with that. Put her in jail. So we got traumatized people committing atrocities and traumatizing themselves more by the atrocity they committed. And we bring them into the justice system and we run them through a preliminary hearing, traumatize them some more. And we run them through a trial, traumatize them again. And we send them to jail where we know they're really going to get traumatized. Then we release them, send them back into the communities and ask them if they learned their lesson. We got this thing in the criminal code, one word, deter. Deterrence doesn't work. Not when your amygdala is making decisions before your rational brain. Not when you're drunk. You're not thinking about what a judge is going to say six months down the road or a year and a half or however long it takes to get to trial. You're in an ancient profession. The first criminal code that we know of was Ethelbert's, about 600 A.D. We've had this system of punishment at least since then. And never in that 1,400 years have we ever proven that deterrence reduces crime. All I see it doing is 
attacking the poor and the marginalized people. And today, in the courtroom, we know, we know it doesn't work. Especially at bail hearings. Somebody's asking for bail and we're arguing about whether it's safe to keep this person in the community. Prosecutor brings out the criminal record and says, jail on there. This guy's been to jail before, Your Honor. And we all know you've been to jail before. You're more likely to commit an offense. We're going to keep you in jail. We know jail doesn't cure criminality. It increases it. And everybody knows that. Because we argue it every goddamn day. Then when we finish arguing that, we argue that he should go to jail for rehabilitation. And it, it just seems to end up a continuing insanity. I mean, like I said before, we know when they come back, they're going to come back angry or they're going to come back angry and mean. And they bring that anger and meanness back into the community and more people get hurt. But I can't leave you there. Can't leave you hopeless. I know that the problem is primarily alcohol. And we send people to treatment, 28 day programs. You know why 28 days? When there's this concern that alcohol was a disorder, insurance companies had to pay for the treatment and they refused to pay for anything more than a 28-day program. So they made all the programs 28 days. That's the only magic in that number. And they don't work. The success rates are between 2 and 5%. 2% for the treatment centers our people go to. 5% you spend thousands of dollars a week and come to Vancouver. I have this friend. He also lived across the lake from me. I've known him a long time. When he was 15 years old, he was down at the beach partying with his friends. And they decided to go back into the reserve. And they were all riding in the back of a half-ton truck. One of the young boys fell out, hit his head, and died. My friend's grandfather came and got him, took him out of the reserve, took him to the trap line, 
taught him to learn respect for nature, taught him to be self-sufficient, taught him how to survive out there. He grew up, did good, eventually came back to his home reserve. He's doing so good, they elected him as a counselor. And on council, he saw there was a lot of problems in his community, a lot of vandalism. Those kids, kids were destroying stuff. They built him a new community center, a skating rink, weight rooms, and a pool room. And the kids broke in and vandalized it. They did tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. He's thinking, well, what the hell's wrong with these kids? Didn't their grandpa teach them respect? He decided to take 11 of them that were getting into the most trouble, and he took them out hunting. And they each shot a moose or an elk. And they came back to the communities, and they butchered those animals, and they went around and they distributed the meat to the elders and people in the community who needed meat. And he saw that the vandalism in his community went down. And he heard about Kwan Lin Dun up in the Yukon, land-based treatment. So they flew up there to go see what's going on. They saw that Kwan Lin Dun was an eight-week program in the summer and it was quite small. And they came back and they said, we can do better than that. And they applied to the federal government for funding. And the government said, no. And they said, well, fuck you then. We'll do it ourselves. And they built Camp Hope. Just went out to a little lake nearby and built some cabins. And they hired a woman who... She's Aboriginal, but she's been trained in Western trauma counseling. And the two of them went to work. And I heard about it, and I knew about it. And then I heard Camp Hope is having a 70-plus percent success rate. And I called my buddy up, and I said, what the hell are you doing? What's going on? And he said, Harold, you won't believe it. When I bring people back at the end of the day, sometimes they're crying. They say, I'm an Indian, but I never said a fishnet before. I'm an Indian, but I never said a rabbit snare. And I saw what he was doing. He was giving them their identity back. I'm an Indian. He was giving them a sense of belonging. I belong here on this land. And when you have that, you have an identity and you belong somewhere, you can begin your healing journey. Politics got in the way of his project and he moved on. But he started other projects. And I've left northern Saskatchewan, moved to Gabriola Island, 
It's paradise. It's amazing that this community, where there is community and people plan, and there's committees, and it's slow, but things get done. And it's so different than northern Saskatchewan where we can never plan. Because we're just reeling from crisis to crisis to crisis. And you're always just reacting. And after a lifetime of crisis after crisis, you get to thinking that's normal. But there's hope. There's hope in Camp Hope. There's hope in all of the treatment programs that are going land-based now. And I left my cabin on my trap line. There was two cabins and a nice Quonset. Oh, I missed that Quonset, man. It had a cement floor in it. You can do mechanics, and if you drop a nut, you're not looking for it in the gravel or the grass. I missed that, but... Montreal Lake Cree Nation bought it from me and they turned it into a land-based education center. So there's good coming from it. If you're in the north and you're talking to my people, and that's the only people I, I'm talking for, I know that I'm on the west coast. My friend Terry Lynn is here. And her culture is different than mine. So I don't speak for all Aboriginal people. I only speak for the Woodland Cree, and I don't even speak for them. I speak from there. I do not speak for. Because when you speak for people, you silence them. So I'm only speaking from this small place. And from there I see hope. The possibilities around land-based. So imagine, instead of sending somebody to a prison, we send them to a land-based program. We separate them from the community, but we heal them instead of traumatizing them more. And we give them their identity and their belonging back. There's hope there. The other bit of hope I want to give you, I call the give a shit factor. You care about somebody, it makes a difference. As professionals, and seems like it's all professionals are told, be professional, don't get involved. Keep your distance. It don't work. There's a woman who was working the streets of Edmonton, one of our people, and it was a horrible day. It was cold, miserable. She's standing on the street, and this man and a woman walked by, and the woman turned around and came back never said a word, walked up to our friend and gave her a hug. 
That's it. Changed that woman's life. She walked off the street that day. And now she's working to get other women off the street. Just that. I go back to my own experience, and I'm going to leave you with two stories. I was prosecuting in the far north, and I got this guy, long criminal record, and he screwed up again. And his lawyer come and asked me if he can if I can agree to release him on bail. And I said, no fucking way. And he went to talk to his client, and he came back, and he said, my client wants to talk to you. I said, I don't care. I'll tell him to his face. So I go back into the interview room. It was just a broom closet, barely any room in there to sit down. I'm going back and forth with this guy, telling him there's no way you're getting out. At one point he says, I've never been given a break. And I said, bullshit. Everybody gets a break. And I opened up his criminal record to show him all the times that he got a break. And it wasn't there. His very first offense, he went to jail. And I said, well, the RCMP are going to be angry at me. But in my book, everybody gets a break. I'm going to agree to your release on bail. And I loaded up those bail conditions, man. I tied his hands and his feet. Curfew, no contact, no alcohol, no nothing. You know what? He didn't breach those conditions first time first time for him he did not breach the next one was after I'd left prosecutions and I'm working at the Northern Alcohol Strategy and we're trying to figure out what we can do in Northern Saskatchewan to deal with alcohol and I came across a case study out of the United States out of South Dakota called 24-7. South Dakota had this tough on crime stuff going on, and they got their jail so full they didn't have room for anymore. And a district attorney came up with this idea for impaired drivers and domestic violence that you could stay in the community, but you had to go to a police station every morning and every evening and blow into a breathalyzer to prove you were sober. And it worked. And the Rand Institute came and did a study. And what they found was the death rate in South Dakota went down. Heart attacks were down by 4%. Domestic violence was down by 12%, and second impaired drivings were down by 9%. And the reason they know that it was because of the 24-7 program was because each county went into it at different times and they were able to trace it across the state. And I thought, holy shit, we can do this in northern Saskatchewan. We can save some lives. Twenty-four percent of all deaths in northern Saskatchewan are related to injury. 
Injuries, car accidents, skidoo accidents, drowning, stabbing, shootings, beatings, house fire, suicide, freezing to death. And we know that's all alcohol. If we can reduce that, maybe we can save some lives, I thought. So I talked to prosecutors and defense counsel and said, let's try this. And a prosecutor gave me a call and he said, I got a youth. I said, no, not a youth. We want someone who, but for their drinking, would be safe in the community. And a few days later, he calls me back and he says, what about Fast Eddie? Yeah, Fast Eddie would be perfect. The last time I prosecuted Fast Eddie, I asked the judge to give him a year. But this time, Eddie had hit his mom. He was drunk, just lashing out, and he hit his mom, and he was just charged with common assault. And normally, if I'm prosecuting and you hit your mom, you get no sympathy. But this time, let's give it a try. And uh, I went to court that day and explained what the 24-7 program was to the judge, explained what we were seeking. And the judge says, well, what we're doing isn't working, so let's give it a try. And Fast Eddie had to go to the police station every morning before 8 o'clock and blow into a breathalyzer, and every evening by between 5 and 6 and blow into a breathalyzer. And we didn't have to put any other conditions on him. Except stay sober, not consume alcohol, and blow into a breathalyzer. He didn't need a curfew. Who cares if he's out till 3 o'clock in the morning if he's not drinking? He can go in the bar if he wants. Go and play slots all night. Just don't drink. Because we know if he's not drinking, he's no problem in the community have contact with his mom because if he's sober, he's not going to hurt his mom. A year after the order, what we did was we gave him a six-month conditional sentence order so that if he breached, he went straight to jail. Um, so he did a six-month order, and then six months later, I went and did a review. And I talked to the police, the staff sergeant, and they liked the order. They said, Eddie showed up twice a day, every day. And if there's any signatures missing on that sign-up sheet, it's the police officer's fault, not his, because he was here every day. And then he went into the police computer and showed me that Eddie didn't show up anywhere in their system. Not only did nobody ever call the police on Eddie, he wasn't in the back seat of a car they pulled over. He wasn't sitting at a party that they got called to. He was just nowhere in their system. I went and interviewed Eddie's employer, and he liked the order because Eddie showed up for work every day. And he knew how hard it was for Eddie. He knew that Eddie was in a relationship with a young woman in her 20s, and Eddie was... a in his early 50s, and the young partner of his still liked to party. And they knew that Eddie's father was having heart problems, and Eddie was scared his dad was going to die, all while this order was in place. 
And I talked to Eddie and uh, asked him what he thought of the order. And he said, well, sometimes the police were assholes. I'd show up and they'd make me wait. Even though they weren't doing anything, they were just gossiping. And yeah, it's true. Sometimes police officers can be assholes. I said, would you rate that order for me? Between zero and ten. Zero being the worst, ten being the best. Eddie gave it a seven. I went and talked to his probation officer. And I know this guy. He's one of those probation officers that gives a shit. And I talked to him and Stan said, you know what Eddie told me? Eddie said he didn't want to breach that order because he didn't want to disappoint Harold Johnson. That's the difference. Show people you give a shit and they'll respond. That probation officer was part of a study done several years ago looking at, they took two groups of probation officers. One group got no training at all. The second group was trained in empathy. And then two years later, they looked at the results. And of those probation officers who were trained in empathy, they found that their clients' recidivism rates were down by 15%. And if the probation officer actually worked the program a little bit, the recidivism rates were down by 19%. Just give a shit. Show them you care. Just listen. You can make a difference. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Hi, hi, Kagadon Kumaganak. All my relations. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they go live. And remember to rate and review us. To find out more, get a copy of my latest book. Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial, by Benjamin Perrin, published by the University of Toronto Press. All author royalties are directly donated to nonprofit organizations that support people who've been incarcerated and survivors of violent crime. Indictment was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. To protect their privacy, the names of people with lived experience have been changed. This podcast is obviously not intended to provide legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. If you're in need of help with any of these things, please consult a professional for assistance. The topics we cover can be upsetting and triggering. If you need support, please check out the show notes for resources. Funding and support for indictment was provided by the Law Foundation of British Columbia and the University of British Columbia. Indictment is produced by me, Benjamin Perrin and Dora Duber. Keep listening and stay safe. See you next time.